You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this portion of scripture. Please help us understand it. Please help us to see your work. Please help us to understand your character. And please help us to be obedient to you. And Father, we pray this in the name of uh, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please sit down. Now, um, I want to start uh, this sermon today by telling you a story. Uh, the story is about a woman whose name was Gladys Aylwood. Now, Gladys was not a woman of wealth. Uh, By all accounts, she was not outstanding in looks either, or even in intellect. However, she was a great woman of faith. Her everyday work was a parlour maid in London, in England, in the 1920s. And then God spoke to her. He called her to dedicate her life to the service of God. And Gladys gladly accepted God's voice. She became convinced that God wanted her to preach the gospel in China. So she applied to the China Inland Mission, as it was called then, but she failed the qualification exams. (laughs) However, she she wouldn't be deterred. She She thought God wanted her there, so she was going to get there. And she heard of of a 70-year-old woman, um, oh, sorry, however, yeah, so she wouldn't be deterred. She heard of a 78-year-old woman in China who was looking for a replacement servant. And so she wrote to her. She offered to come and to carry on the work of that other servant. Her offer was accepted. All she had to do now is get to China. (laughs) She didn't have the money for the boat. But she did have enough for the train in England. It's still a long way to go after you get, get out of the train, isn't it? So in October 1930, Gladys set out from London with her passport, her Bible and the remaining two pounds, nine pence that she had and she set out to travel to China on the Trans-Siberian Railway. As you do. Right, through a torturous route, including trains, bus, mules and ships, eventually she got there for nearly 20 years. She ministered there in China. It was a ministry marked by just a simple trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Deep uh, conviction and practical common sense. And God blessed it with fruitfulness. Many were converted to Christ through her ministry. But let me make things clear. Gladys was not a likely candidate for Christian ministry. Not likely at all. However, she was a faithful one. And she was filled with courage. Why do I start a sermon this way? With a story about Gladys. Why? 
I do so because Gladys stands, I think, in a long, long line behind Jesus and the hero of this passage today. What we see in Gladys is, I think, of the same shape and order as what we will see in 1 Samuel 13 to 14. And my hope is that as we examine this passage today together, that we might be inspired to stand in line as well. So let's see what God has to teach us from his word today. And you, you, can see, you, you listen to the reading, it's not easy. So let's see if I can make some sense out of it for us all. So Now, uh, like last week, we have a lot of ground to cover today. So let me give you some of the clues as to how to understand it. Here they are. Clue number one. Remember Hannah. If you haven't got that yet in these sermons, you haven't been listening very well, right? But remember Hannah. (laughs) Okay, number one. Uh, Do you remember her story? She asked God to give her a child and he does and she responds in praise in chapter 2 of well, 1 Samuel and I want you to look at it in your Bibles with it. Flip to it digitally or physically or whatever you have. She declares that God is holy and incomparable. There is none like him. But then in verse 7 and 8 she declares him to be the one who exalts the humble and brings down the proud. Then in verse 9 she tells us that God does this because it is not by might that a person wins, prevails. Then she applies the theology to kingships, to kingship and to the kings that are coming. And she says that the true and godly king will find their source and their strength in the Lord who will exalt the power of his anointed. That's clue number one. So clue number one, remember Hannah. And remember that she says that God expects these things of his king. Okay, that's number one. Clue number two is found in chapter 10. So flip in your Bibles to chapter 10 and take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 10 verse 5 with me. Samuel is told uh, to head to Gibeah of God. He is told that when he does, God's spirit will come upon him. And then he is told that when the spirit comes upon him, he's to do whatever his hand finds to do. Now, the natural reading of this passage is that the natural thing to do when you're coming across a Philistine outpost is to assault it. Um, Perhaps that might have provided for a full-scale conflict if if he'd done that. Then according to verse 8, he's to go on to Gilgal. Then he must wait seven more days until Samuel arrives. So that's the second clue. Remember Saul. Remember, he was meant to attack a Philistine outpost. Okay, hang on to this. Remember that once he got to Gilgal, he was to wait seven days. That's clue number two. So clue number two, remember Saul had a job to do and there was a way he was meant to go about it. Now let me tell you clue number three for interpreting everything that we're going to look at. You can find clue number three in chapter 12. Chapter 12 makes clear that kings are subject to prophets. Kings are not king, if I could put it that way. Prophets are king. Right? They're in charge. So um, chapter 12 makes clear those things. Kings are subject to prophets and not the reverse. Kings are under a covenant forged by God and his word. 
That's the third thing to remember. Kings are not under the direction of prophets. Oh, sorry, are under the direction of prophets and not vice versa. So remember those three things. They are very important. Grasp hold of them, stick them in your brain. They'll help you to understand what's about to happen. Okay, now that's a rather technical beginning, so let's get into it because it will flow along quite well now and quite quickly. So, a bit more background though, one more bit of background. I need to tell you about Philistines. Now, most of you would know Philistines, but here we go. Uh, First, the Philistines have been making some advances into Israelite territory at this particular point in history. You can see that in verses 3 and 5 in our chapter. Second, they are a nation that is technologically much more advanced than Israel. Third, they significantly outnumber Israel. Look at verses 2, 5 and 6 and compare and contrast the numbers. Then 1 Samuel 13 says that there were no blacksmiths in Israel in those days. Now you might think, oh, no big deal. But actually, what are you fighting with? Metal weapons. You need blacksmiths. Okay? Um, So, therefore, they are short on weapons. So they're disadvantaged. All right, have you got all of that? Put all of that together. Now we're prepared. All right. Let's look at what happens. Verse 3, Jonathan attacks the Philistine garrison. In verses 3 and 4, Saul summons the Israelites to war. Then in verses 6 and 7, they see the superior strength of the Philistines and they melt away in fear and they hide. However, Saul hangs around and waits for Samuel to turn up as expected. Then Samuel does not turn up, verse 8. And Saul takes things into his own hands and what does he do? He sacrifices the burnt offering in verse verse 9. And then, who should turn up but Samuel? Um, And he quizzes Saul in verses 11 and 12. And Saul tries to defend himself, but Samuel slams him in verse 13. And then he announces that God will take the kingship from him. Look and listen to verse 14. It is very potent. Samuel says, But now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart because the Lord and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. And then Saul and Samuel separate. Saul now has, um, having said this, he goes off in one direction and Saul goes off in the other direction. And verse 15 tells us that Saul's forces have now been whittled down to 600 men. And verse 15 tells us that, um, oh, sorry, and so now he's without a prophet and he's without many soldiers enough to do the job. And he's without God's endorsement and blessing now, it's been taken off him. He is largely without God's people as well. Can you hear me? What this text is doing systematically is saying, this man is so diminished now. He is on his own. He's in a grim place. So there's the story of chapter 13. Most important thing to pick up is Saul's most critical mistake. What is it? Clearly stated by Samuel, verse 13, 
He has not kept the command of God. He has not stood under the kingship of God. In other words, he's not led the people in the most important way. Deuteronomy 17, which announced kingship, was very, very clear on this. Kings should listen to God and they should obey him and his will and his word. He's also failed to submit his kingship to the prophet. He hasn't let the prophet determine what's right and wrong. He stood above the prophet. Effectively, can you see what he's done? He has given every indication in his life and his actions that he thinks kingship can work separately from God and from God's representatives. Saul is not, is not a godly king. He has not been obedient to God's word. And he does not listen to God's prophet. Saul is not a model of a godly king. On the contrary, he's a model of an ungodly king. So there's the first half of the story. You're doing well, hang on in there. I know it's a long story. But it is glorious in what it tells us about God. So hang on in there. Now, turn to the second half of chapter, from chapter 13, verse 23, to the end of chapter 14. In verse 23, we find a, a little detachment of Philistine soldiers at a pass or at a place called Michmash. It's a great name, isn't it? In chapter 24, uh, sorry, in chapter 14, verse 2, we hear that Saul is uh, staying, literally uh, sitting. That's what the text actually says. He's staying, he's sitting under a pomegranate tree with 600 men. Chapter 14, to as you do, I suppose. Anyway, um, but now look at his son, Jonathan, verses 4 to 6. He is active in thought, verse 4. Uh, he springs into action, verse 6. Like Hannah, he boldly trusts in God. Jonathan says, come on! <laughs> Let us cross into the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Isn't that grand faith? Then he seeks confirmation from God and of God's willingness in a sign. That's in verses 8 to 10. Then the two of them respond with courage in verses 8 to 14. Now, let me tell you, this picture is striking. Given that we've already seen a picture of the king, now we see his son. Look at verse 15. God acts in partnership with Jonathan. He, he causes the earth to shake and terror to abound, verse 15. But now look at the contrast, verse 16. This is wonderful writing, isn't it? Just keep an eye on it. We see Saul again. And he doesn't join in with God and Jonathan. So he's again not lining up with the right people. Instead he engages in a roll call and he brings up the Ark of the Covenant and finally though he sees sense. He makes a quick decision that he will take advantage of the situation and go into battle. And then when they do they find that the havoc caused by God is so overwhelming that the Philistines are, can you see it there? Verse 20, fighting against each other in great confusion. And that's just as well, really. 
Uh, after all, in chapter 13, verse 22, we were told that only Saul and Jonathan had swords. So <laughs> how are you going to survive? Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me tell you, this story is a retelling in different guise of Hannah's story, isn't it? Celebrated back in those early chapters of Samuel. Here is a God of reversals. Earlier in chapter 13, verse 5, Beth-Avon was a place of distress and desertion. Not now, not now. Now it is a place where the Lord's rescue has been enacted and where troop numbers have swelled. Look at 1422 to 23. I mean, this is great stuff, isn't it? God has been active. God's people are victorious. But there's a dampener coming. Did you see it? Did you hear it when we read it? Look at verses 24 and 25. Saul engages in some rather bizarre behaviour. He binds his people to an oath saying this, the, Lord, the, the man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance on my, my enemies, is cursed. Now as it happens, verse 25 tells us that there is an ample supply of honey in the woods. Now you think, yeah, okay. But the soldiers refused the prospect of a sugar hit right? uh, and the energy it would have given them. The end result is, spelled out in verse 28, can you see it there? They become exhausted. They had a ready supply of things that would give them strength, as it were. But they're banned from using it. But who doesn't become exhausted? Did you spot it? Jonathan. He had eaten honey in verse 27. His energy had been renewed. And he says that his father has made trouble for the country. These are the same words that are used against Achan who sins at Jericho in Joshua chapter 7 verse 25. It's not good company. They're the same words that are used later of the evil king Ahab in 1 Kings 16. Again, not good company. They are same, they, they, uh, it, it, yeah, so it's not good company. And our writer is effectively, I think, undermining Saul here. He's saying, this man has not got it right. This man has not got it right. But look at the impact in verses 31 and 32. Can you see it? The men become so exhausted that they act rashly. They slaughter animals without performing the required draining of blood. They break the law. That forces Saul to take some quick action in making an improvised altar and making sure that things go right. You can see that in verses uh, 31 to 35. And then verses 36 to 46 tell us about the aftermath of all of this. Saul wants to push on. He suggests that the troops go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the dawn. They agree. Then the priests say, well, maybe we might ask God about all of this. Right? Maybe we should inquire of God. But God doesn't respond, verse 37. And Saul interprets God's silence as an indicator that sin is present. So he starts casting lots to find out who's responsible. And sure enough, 
the lot falls to Jonathan. Um, Saul, Jonathan is then invited to explain, and he does. And Saul declares that Jonathan shall lose his life. He's emphatic in verse 44. But the men, they won't have it. (laughs) They will not have it. They rescue him. In fact, the original language has that they redeem him. And the end result? Saul is now isolated further and weakened further. The signs are there that he's beginning to come apart as a person, I think. He's a man in demise. He's a man falling apart. But lest we overstate our case, look at the closing verses of the chapter. You've done very well today. This is a long chapter and uh, most of you have stayed with me. So (laughs) stick there. We're nearly, we're getting there. Um, The Israelites had had wanted a king, hadn't they, in order to protect them against the growing military presence. And these verses show that Saul was something of a success here. The author of the book, though, wants to tell us that Saul did accomplish what Israel wanted of a king. However, the stories such as the one we've looked at have shown us the cost. What is the cost? As God made clear in chapter 8, kings are people with personal interests. Kings are people with personal interests. They are people who manipulate others. They are people who use their power in ungodly ways for ungodly success. They are people who manipulate others and use their power in ungodly ways for ungodly reasons. They can be foolish or even malicious and put the people of God at threat. And these factors make kingship a fragile proposal at the very best. So, You've done well, but I want to show you something really positive. I want you to contemplate Jonathan. So while there's darkness in this text, there is an immense light in this young man. A glimmer of hope, and I think it comes, like I said, in Jonathan's shape. You see, I think that Jonathan is offered by the writer as as a deliberate contrast to his dad. I don't have time to explore it in depth, but I can tell you that our writer is explicitly comparing and uh, and contrasting Saul and Jonathan in this text. And Jonathan comes out on top. He simply has an armour bearer and a simple trust in a great God. And whenever he acts, Israel is encouraged and fortified. Three times the word linked with salvation is used in relation to Jonathan. Three times. Jonathan plays the part, I think, of the hero in this text. He is the sort of man who looks like the person outlined in Hannah's song. Not a person of might, no, but of faith. A person who's confident that God is the God of the helpless, just as Hannah was who knows that the Lord alone will give Israel victory and shatter the adversaries. 
Friends, my own view is that 1 Samuel 14 is designed to show us what God's Messiah should be like. And he's not like Saul. No. He's like Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan is in no position of power in this story. In the previous chapter, his father's actions have deprived him of the right of kingship. He'll never be king. He's therefore one who is without a seat of honour in terms of the future. He is, though, like Hannah. In courage, he calls on God to act. He puts his faith and his trust in God. And God exalts him. God exalts him. God fights before him and with him. And Jonathan does not prevail in his own might. He prevails because God is for him. And he is for God. Friends, please understand what I'm saying today. It's very important. He is humble. Jonathan, I think, stands as a precursor for the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of it. How is he like Jesus? He's humble. He has no apparent self-interest. He courageously depends upon God despite the odds. He fights for God's people. He's against, he's the agent of salvation. He's willing to suffer for others. He is not zealous for fame and honour and kingship at all. No, he is zealous for God. God is who matters and he is for God. And in these ways, I think he is the precursor of David. The Davidus we see, we see with Goliath in chapter 17. But he's also, I think, much more grandly a precursor of our Lord Jesus. Who though he was, think, listen to these words, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be explained. That's how the New Testament presents him. Or exploited, I mean. Here's the, here's, here's the precursor of Jesus who humbled himself. Do you remember this text? Humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the precursor of Jesus who didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, please take this in tonight and learn from it. You see, the Christian life, in Christian life and in Christian ministry, we are people who are, pla- who are faced with great temptations. Great temptations. And the greatest temptation will be to succeed. To succeed. To be victorious. To be a great one. But what God wants is not success. No, he wants us to be children. (laughs) To be dependent. To be feeble. He wants no arrogance from us. He wants no boasting from us. No self-sufficiency from us. You see, in God's upside-down world, it is the feeble who gird on strength 
It is the hungry who are fat with spoil. It is the barren who bear children. And it is the poor who are made rich and exalted. What God wants of us is humility and godliness. He wants us to be like Hannah, then Jonathan, then David, then Gladys Aylwood, but mostly like the Lord Jesus. Now, friends, perhaps God may grant you success in life and in ministry. Perhaps he may give some of us honour amongst men and women of this world, but equally he may not. But that doesn't matter because it's not human success that he is after, you see. He's after faith and confidence and dependence. And so my challenge to you today is to determine that you'll be characterised by humility and godliness. That when people speak of you, they will speak of your humility and your godliness. For those things are of eternal value. Those things last long after the shouts of praise from humans have died away. These things will last long. They will stretch into eternity. And these are the things that characterised our Lord. So they ought to characterise us. They are the things that our Lord looks for. As he himself said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor of spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we are often so like the world around us instead of like your Son. Please shape us more and more daily into the likeness of him. Please make us poor in spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.